This morning I want to encourage you to turn once again to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12 is our text. Our focus will be in verses 1 through 12 as we continue an exposition of this Gospel. Gospel according to Luke. And these are the words that we have before us today inspired by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 12, I'll begin reading in verse 1. We read, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will have many things competing for your loyalty. And as a result, your loyalty to Jesus, your confessed loyalty to Christ as a Christian, your devotion to him, your, your, your loyalty to him will often be tested. You'll find many things in this world that will push you to compromise such loyalty. It may be things simply as safety or comfort, cultural acceptance, politics, temptations. On and on we can go. There are a variety of different things, many different things that will test our loyalty to Christ. So we need help. We need wisdom. We need grace. We need strength empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue on as disciples of Jesus, to walk faithfully with him, that when our loyalty to him is tested and we are pressured from every side, that we would stand firm and that we would persevere by his grace and not sell out our loyalty. Here in chapter 12, 
Jesus and his disciples find themselves surrounded by a growing, a large crowd. You see it there in the first verse. When so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. This was a massive crowd that was pressing in around Jesus, presumably to continue to hear him teach or to seek him for a variety of different reasons. And this is the, the setting of that, and it's in the midst of all of this. There's this growing crowd, thousands of people gathering, trampling over each other to, to get to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He pulls his disciples aside and instructs them. He prioritizes them in this moment so that they would continue to be prepared to live as his followers. He he knows what they're going to face. And as he looks around at that crowd, he sees, even then, temptations that they would presumably have. And he continues to speak into their lives to prepare them and to equip them that they would remain loyal to him. We think about what Jesus says here. In some ways, we look at what he says, and it seems like he's just giving them several different, not random, but different types of instruction that may or may not seem connected. He talks about hypocrisy. He talks about fear. talks about acknowledging Jesus before others. But yet we see, I think, a connection of what Jesus is trying to get at here as he speaks into their lives, he is is calling them to remain loyal to him. And as he does so, he identifies several important considerations that they needed to take to heart as they would continue to follow him, knowing all of the pressures and temptations that they would face. And so this is a call in some ways to remain loyal to Jesus. And our loyalty to King Jesus is something that we must remain committed to above all else in this world. And as we think through that this morning, I want us to walk through this text and see several considerations about our loyalty to Christ. That I believe that as Jesus speaks to his disciples and through them to us, He's calling us and motivating us and equipping us to remain loyal to him. How do we do that? Several things to consider. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we see that our loyalty to Jesus will be exposed through judgment. Our loyalty will be exposed through judgment. In verses 1 through 3, Jesus continues to shine the light of the Hypocrisy of the Pharisees before his disciples. In the previous chapter, we know that Jesus went to a dinner at a Pharisee's house. It was an awkward one because of what transpired. And we we remember looking at that last week as Jesus confronts the, the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of the Pharisee. And he continues now with that same theme as he's instructing his disciples before this growing crowd. You see, the Pharisees presented a false piety 
what they reflected was fake, was not genuine to the true gospel, to the truth of God's word. What they presented outwardly was not what matched internally. They were not able to represent the truth. They were only able, the problem with the Pharisees is this, they were only able to give the impression of holiness. And the reason that they were only able to give the impression of holiness was because they had based their understanding of holiness on a system that was not of God. Their hypocrisy was entangled in a bunch of different ways. Not only were they living a fraudulent life before watching world, they were living a fraudulent life because they based their understanding of life and holiness on a fraudulent truth. They were basing it upon error. They weren't living in obedience to the truth, and therefore they were unable to represent and reflect the truth. And Jesus' message to his disciples was clear. Beware of their hypocrisy. Don't fall into the same trap. You see, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees was problematic in that they wanted to appear loyal to God, but they were not. And he says to his disciples, beware of that that hypocrisy. What motivations does Jesus give in his warning? Two, he gives at least. One is what we would call the impact, or we see here the impact of hypocrisy. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's a warning. He, he's speaking, beware, watch out for, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. We know that leaven or yeast was a small piece of fermented dough often used to ferment other dough. It would spread throughout the entire loaf in the, in the bread-making process. And so it was a, an ingredient that was impactful. Well, in the New Testament, we know that leaven was often used as a symbol for evil influence that, if left in place, would corrupt. And so the leaven of the Pharisees had a corrupting influence. And Jesus here identifies that as that leaven as hypocrisy, their, their religious hypocrisy that they were exhibiting. The hypocrisy that, that the Pharisees exhibited was a false representation of the faith. They got it wrong from the start, and, and the thing was is that they got it wrong, and then they wouldn't even represent what they got wrong. Even their own religious system that they had fabricated, they did not remain loyal to. Thus, they not only impacted themselves, they hindered and impacted the lives of many others. We see it in the end of chapter 11, don't we? When he's warning the lawyers and certainly presumably included in this warning and this woe that Jesus is using is the Pharisees because he's already spoken to them. And he says in verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. The, the leaven of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees was leaven in that it corrupted and influenced and impacted others. 
It led them astray. And this is a warning that Christ followers needed to hear, need to hear clearly today. There are tons of ways that hypocrisy can be found in our lives and hearts. All of us are hypocritical. We understand that because of sin. For example, all of us would say that you should obey the law. And yet, how many of you broke the speed limit coming to church today? You see the point. We can, we can always see hypocrisy in our lives, and we can always point out inconsistencies. But here, Jesus is specifically condemning the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, a misrepresentation of the truth of God and his word, which had a ripple effect. And we see that fleshed out in perhaps endless ways today. Hypocrisy can be exhibited in a way that, in, in multiple ways, as, as, as followers of Christ. Whether it's giving ourselves over to a pattern, a life that is not consistent with biblical truth or the gospel. Whether it's seen in a lifestyle that consistently, a lifestyle that consistently contradicts God's word. Or, worse, we will say, God's word doesn't teach such and such, therefore I will live in such and such way. Remember that Jesus warned the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, honor me with your lips, but you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. In vain, he says, do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines, the commandments of men. So you see there Jesus exposing yet again their hypocrisy. You, you say one thing with your mouth and yet your heart is far from me. You have no intention of worshiping me. You have no intention of obeying me. You have no intention of following me and yet with your mouth you say you do. With your, with your heart you don't. How often does that show up in our own lives? It can be seen by associating Jesus with things that aren't of God and thus misrepresenting the kingdom of God. I think you saw that to some degree Wednesday. Regardless of your political leanings and thoughts about the election, the one thing that upset so many Christians and pastors even, as I talked with them this week, was the Christian imagery that was associated with what we saw unfold. A pastor friend of mine said it best this week in a conference call that I was on. He said, when you read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, the thing that got Christians in trouble was not fueling a political revolution, but preaching the resurrection. It's the gospel. Friends, we have a responsibility to say what Christianity is and isn't as it's defined by the gospel and the kingdom of God, not what we saw this past week. So associating the kingdom of God with things that aren't the kingdom of God can be seen by emphasizing certain biblical commands over the others. You saw that from chapter 11. You tithe, but you don't love God or seek justice. Can't be a true or serious Christian if you aren't engaging in this particular cause, a biblical cause perhaps, and yet completely ignoring or undermining other biblical commands. We see this kind of hypocrisy all the time, and he's saying, listen, beware of this kind of hypocrisy because of its influence. It impacts other people. It's like leaven. It corrupts. 
not only destroys our lives individually, but it has a corrupting impact upon others. You see the impact of hypocrisy, but you also see the exposure. This should be a motivating factor. One motivating factor that we should beware of hypocrisy is the impact that it has on others. Number two is the exposure of it. The corrupting influence of hypocrisy is certainly a motivation for us to avoid, but Jesus highlights the judgment of God as well. You see, the, the judgment of God is, is implied here very clearly. He says in verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus is, is pointing to the day and time when we will stand before God and all that's hidden will be revealed. Sobering reminder, isn't it? See, the Pharisees may have had their way in this present world, but there would come a day when they would be seen for who they truly are. It's a reminder to us as well, a warning to disciples that hypocrisy will not stand forever. God is omniscient. He knows all things. Really what you see bleeding from this, these first three verses is this emphasis on beware of hypocrisy because it's evil impact, but also beware of it because God is omniscient. He knows all things and you will be held accountable. Friends, this is a warning to to the disciples and to us that there will be times when we may be tempted to compromise God's word and truth in order to be seen favorably by others. This was Jesus' main point. Don't forsake the truth for the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus is saying, remember, there will be a time when all is revealed, and it may be in the present, but especially in the judgment. Remember that God knows and sees all things, and we are ultimately and fully and finally accountable to him. It ought to serve as a warning for those of us who are filled with hypocrisy, saying one thing with our mouth and completely having no, no desire to live what we say. Because we're not talking about wrestling with sin. We're not talking about those, for, those of us who understand that we struggle with sin in the flesh and we're, we're seeking to put to death the deeds of the body, seeing sin for what it is and pursuing repentance, a lifetime of that. What we're talking about are those who try to cover up their sin by righteous-looking behavior and representing something they truly aren't from the beginning. Let that be a warning to us and take heed because we will stand before God to give accounts. Loyalty to Christ, brothers and sisters, is a matter of the heart. And our hearts will be exposed for what they truly are before Christ. Our loyalty will be exposed through judgment. But number two, a second observation, consideration is this. Our loyalty will be evident through our fears. See that in verses 4 through 7. It seems that in verse 4, Jesus moves on from hypocrisy to a different subject, fear. Fear of man, fear of God. But the two are really connected, aren't they? 
Think about this. At the heart of hypocrisy often is this desire to please others, to be seen with approval. So Jesus presses in further here. He he goes in and really begins to, to, to address their hearts as a follower of Jesus. He knows there would be times Perhaps as these thousands of people are gathering and pressing in, that there would be times when the temptation is great to please others and not represent the Lord. He's preparing them. He's preparing them for opposition. He's preparing them for persecution. He's preparing them for when the pressures are significant. If they are going to stand on the truth, unlike the Pharisees would, then they are going to be opposed and persecuted. And his message to them is simple. Do not fear those who can kill your body. Do not allow your lives to be controlled by those who would threaten you with physical harm, even death. Rather, your fear needs to be rooted in him, God, who not only has the power to kill you, but has the authority to judge you, to put you in hell. Let's look at these separately for just a quick moment. Number, quick moment. That's, that's hypocrisy from a pastor, isn't it? Number, first thing that we see is we're called to put off the fear of man. Put off the fear of man. Friends, Jesus never promises us full physical protection in this life, does he? Nor does he promise to keep us from opposition. There will be those who oppose us. In this world, you will have tribulation, he says. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. There will be those who will oppose us, want to silence us, perhaps harm and even kill us. And Jesus says, you must not fear them. The worst thing they can do to you is kill you. (laughs) Sounds funny, doesn't it? I mean, it's the worst thing they can do, he says. I know for us, we think, well, that's pretty drastic. But he says, that's, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. The worst thing that can be done to you is that they can take your body out. Think about that, friends. Think about that exhortation and how important it is for us to consider. He's speaking to his disciples in this context, two of which would end up denying Jesus. Peter, as predicted, denied Jesus three times. Three times. Judas, we know, denied Jesus, sold him for pieces of silver to the angry mob and resulted in his, ultimately, his death. If if you do not think it's possible for some of the closest people to Jesus to struggle with the fear of man, then you've not followed the disciples too closely. Now, I realize that here in the West, we don't experience persecution on the levels as many of our brothers and sisters do in many other nations. Our allegiance, our loyalty to Jesus, honestly, in comparison to Others in the world, at least right now, cost us little in comparison. 
Maybe our job, maybe our reputation, maybe some relationships, all of which are important, but definitely not our life. Yet, even when it comes to reputation, employment, relationships, we are tempted, often tempted, to be more concerned about how we are perceived or viewed than we are with what the Lord thinks of us. So this exhortation, which points to how we should not fear those who can kill us, the greatest threat we can receive from a human, but how much more we should fear him who can do more. So if we are called here, Jesus is saying, fear not those who can kill your body, then think about our context. How much more should we not fear those around us who whose threats are less than that. Brothers and sisters, fear of man is a real struggle. I struggle with the fear of man. And if we're not willing to understand that, to acknowledge it, if we're not willing to address it, and if we're not winning this battle of loyalty in the small things, then how do we expect to stay faithful when a sword is coming at your head? Put off the fear of man. All they can do is kill you. Put on the fear of God. That's the second thing. Fear the one who can not only kill you, but judge you, cast you to hell. Fearing God, think about that. Fear, fearing God. See it there in the text? Do not fear those who can kill the body. But I will warn you, verse 5, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who can, after he is killed, has authority to cast you into hell. There's this call to fear him, to fear God, to fear the one who has authority over us. Think about that. Fearing God is, is something that often sounds, uh, if not strange, peculiar to our ears, our modern ears. Because when we think of fear... We associate fear with a negative reaction, don't we, oftentimes. Yet, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We're commanded all throughout the Old and New Testaments to fear God, to, to fear Him. Typically, when we think of fearing someone, we think of avoiding them, running from them, seeing them as a threat. But this idea, biblically, to fear God has to do with awe and reverence and treasuring him, holding God in high esteem and trusting him for who he is. So don't give that to those who can only kill you. Give that to, those, to the one, the only one who can take you out, but also has authority to judge you. What are some motivations to grow in our fear of God? He gives a couple of here. He gives, first of all, he, he says we should recognize his unlimited authority. Again, God not only can take you out, he has the authority to assign you to hell. Hell, this word Gehenna, is the place of the dead. There in verse 5. It's named after the place, a place called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, which was a ravine south of Jerusalem that basically served as a trash dump where material and dead criminals were burned. It was a terrible place. And so it's this, this imagery that he uses to describe judgment. 
God's authority is not only ultimate in this life, but it extends into the next. Thus, we need to fear him above all others. This is the logic. This is the point Jesus is making. Fear him who not only has authority over your life here, but has authority over your life eternally. He has authority to judge you. Recognize that. That should cause us to humble ourselves before him, to to recognize his authority, to fear him. But number two, we should rejoice in his meticulous care. Think about this. Another reason that Jesus gives here as to why we should fear God is actually a comfort to us. The reason he gives for us to fear the Lord is also a comfort to us. Jesus acknowledges here God's care over his creation, and he points to the truth that God's care extends all the way down to the general parts of creation that seem insignificant. Verse 6, after he says, yes, I tell you, fear him, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more value than many sparrows. Sparrow was often the cheapest thing sold in the marketplace. And despite being the cheapest thing in the market, despite the seeming insignificance of a bird, Jesus says not one escapes God's attention. Not one. And I think in a bit of a humorous way, Jesus is basically saying, listen, you are valuable to God. You're more valuable than a handful of birds. Did you see his point? You see the logic of his argument. If God so cares about the birds, if not one of these insignificant creatures escapes the awareness and the attention of God, then friend, you need to understand how valuable you are. Therefore, you can trust him. You should fear him because he has authority over you and he has care of you. Friends, we we will all fear someone or something. Jesus here is exhorting his followers to make sure that the object of their fear is not the fear of man, but the fear of the Lord. Because what you fear is ultimately what you will serve. Think about that. What you fear, who you fear is ultimately what or who you will serve. The Lord has authority over you and he cares deeply for you. Therefore, he must be the object of our fear. Friends, who are you fearing? What are you fearing? What things are you tempted to trust in and fear over the Lord? Is it reputation? Safety, comfort, relationship, our loyalty, our loyalty to Jesus will be evident through what and who we fear. Number three, our loyalty will be exposed through our confession, and you see that in verses 8 through 12. 
Since I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Again, at the heart of these verses, I believe, is this this exhortation, a warning and an exhortation to remain loyal to Jesus. And part of that loyalty will be expressed in what we confess with our mouth and certainly with our lives. Likely here the context is persecution. Jesus has in mind. Yet certainly I think the same commands would apply generally, whether you're being persecuted or not. But I think a good question to consider when we, when we hear him talk about everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied. Is this a one-time denial or is this a pattern of denial? He says who denies. Think again of Peter. He denied Jesus three times but was restored and used mightily of God. Judas denied Jesus in a moment for money and yet perished in his denial. This idea of denial is this posture of the heart, the pattern of our hearts. Two things here about confessing Christ that we should note. Number one, our confession certainly confirms our status. Our loyalty is exposed through our confession. This, this, this confession, it's, it's confirming one way or the other where we stand. Confer- confessing Christ before others is foundational to our discipleship. Yet there will inevitably be times when confessing Jesus is hard. The greatest hypocrisy is saying that we trust Jesus and yet stand before others and say we don't know him. Some of you may may even think about that. Some of you may think, there's no way. I can't imagine a situation where I would deny Jesus. Well, Peter thought the same thing. Remember what Peter said when Jesus said, you'll deny me three times? This is what he said. Even if I must die with you, I I will not deny you. And he was in the top three of the disciples. Three times he denied Jesus before others. So friends, if you do not think this will ever be a temptation for you, just look to Peter and understand that even the closest of disciples may struggle at times with being loyal to Jesus through our confession of him. And so this is an exhortation, a reminder, a check in our hearts here to say, listen, be reminded that your confession before a watching world matters. Necessary part of being a loyal disciple to Jesus is being willing to publicly acknowledge him, even when it's hard, even when it's costly. All they can do is kill you. He also gives a strong warning about the extreme end of such denial. Look at the text. Again, if you deny him before others, he will deny you before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Brings up this whole conversation about, well, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It says here that a word spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
Remember what the role of the Holy Spirit is. His role is to testify to the works of Christ. And so this denial would certainly include who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish as the Spirit gives evidence and testimony to that. And so this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is is pointing to a denial that is settled over time, a persistent rejection of the Spirit's work that testifies to Jesus' work and power. Matthew or Mark's gospel, I can't remember which one, goes further and talks about how the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing the works of Jesus to the works of Satan more specifically. So his point being simply here is that a persistent rejection of the Spirit's work to testify to the works of Christ will certainly lead to your own rejection before God. Our confession confirms our status but we also understand that our confession is empowered by the Spirit. It says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. Notice Jesus says, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if they bring you. But he says, when they bring you. He's anticipating opposition. He's anticipating persecution, hardship, difficulty. For his disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Why? For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit is present to empower and equip you with all that's needed to confess Christ before the world, even when that confession may bring physical harm or even death. It's an encouragement to us. Don't worry when you find yourself being threatened or persecuted because of Christ. Don't worry when your loyalty to Jesus is being threatened as to how you're going to respond because the Holy Spirit is present to sustain and strengthen you and equip you with all that's needed in that moment to stand for Jesus. Therefore, we should be confident that even in our greatest test of loyalty, that God the Spirit is present to give us all that we need. Brothers and sisters, loyalty is expressed through Spirit-empowered confession. Loyalty to Jesus matters. It matters more than anything else we do in this world. Loyalty to Christ and his gospel and his kingdom ought to be the driving priority of our lives and all that we do ought to be. It matters more than anything else in this world and we are called to consistently demonstrate this loyalty in all that we do, all that we say, all that we believe. And we know that yet we live in a world where on a daily, if not hourly basis, that loyalty to Jesus will be tested. And so the resolve of our hearts, as instructed by King Jesus, as empowered by the Holy Spirit, and by God's grace, is that each and every day must be a day where we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Jesus is Lord, and he is king, and he alone has my allegiance and my loyalty to the end. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that there are many times when we have failed you. We acknowledge that we are inconsistent at best in expressing our devotion and our allegiance and our loyalty to you. And we ask that you would forgive us when we are. You would expose in our hearts and lives ways that we abandon the truth or misrepresent the truth in a way that is harmful to the gospel and the kingdom of God. Forgive us for these failures. And yet, Lord, would you encourage us and by your grace sustain us by your Spirit, through your Word, with what we need to remain faithful to you in the midst of a chaotic and difficult world that presses in on us from every side, not to mention our own flesh. Father, would you help our fear, the object of our fear, to be you? Would you help our commitment be the clear teaching of your word and the gospel? That we would represent that faithfully. Would you help our confession to this world and before this watching world be true? to all that you've promised and all that you are. Help us, Lord, to remain loyal, even when it's hard. Help us to realize ways that we are tempted to forsake you and give us courage and give us boldness to endure to the end and persevere by your grace, knowing that we have a king who watches over us and gives us all that we need. Lord, we're thankful for this word to us. We're thankful that we can be instructed and encouraged, corrected. Thankful, Lord, for all that we have. Most of all, Father, we thank you for the great work that Jesus accomplished on our behalf by coming and giving himself for all of our sinful inconsistencies, for all of our selfish ways, for giving himself for our sin that we may be reconciled to you so that we can walk in truth and in grace. Father, we thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.